0: I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're talking about a symphonic masterpiece, Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 6, Pathétique. It was his last symphony, and one that leaves unanswered questions. We show you what to listen for, some of Tchaikovsky's unique musical characteristics, and we examine some of his letters to get a better insight into his emotional state that final year. Plus, stay with us to the end as we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. This symphony is one of Tchaikovsky's greatest achievements, and for me, one that will forever be special, and one that the composer himself thought was something really special too, as we'll see from his letters. But Evan, I have to say, you know, after hearing this symphony so many times, after having even performed it, and just looking it up and researching it for this discussion, I feel like I know it less now than ever before. I have so many questions.
1: I have the same experience, John. You know, I got to know this symphony pretty intimately when I was in high school. One of the first uh, orchestral scores I ever purchased was of this symphony, and I studied it, and I've been trying to unlock the mysteries of this symphony ever since I was a teenager, and yeah, like you, I, I, the more I get into it, the more I listen to it, the more I look at the score, hear different performances of it and think about it. It feels like there's so many layers of meaning and there's so much to discover in this piece and that the more we look into it, it's almost like we find ourselves
0: learning more about ourselves as we're learning more about the music. So just looking at the title of it, even the symphony number six, Pathetic. what does that mean? It sounds like almost in English, uh, pathetic, but originally in Russian, the title was something it was um, translating to passionate or or deeply emotional. This translating to the French Pathétique, and that might sound familiar in terms of, well, we have a Pathetic sonata by Beethoven. I think this gives us a little bit of foreshadowing to the emotional aspects of the work, Which is clear right from the beginning. We have something very emotional. It sounds very dark. It sounds like almost a a statement of despair right from the opening.
1: And one of the amazing things about this piece is Tchaikovsky is able to achieve these very powerful emotional effects. They draw you in and with such simple musical language. This very very opening you have an open fifth in the strings This very bare very stark kind of sound and then this bassoon comes in this bassoon solo and it just plays a scale one two three two two three four three very very simple the, the rhythm is very simple two eighth notes two quarter notes stepwise motion nothing complicated or surprising or baffling just very very
0: stark and simple language and the very first sounds we hear in the symphony we're already drawn in and talking about simple you mentioned that perfect fifth that starts off the beginning with that interval alone just those notes you're not even given an indication an indication of if this is something in major or minor i mean it's quite quite open ended until moments later that a bassoon comes in right So does that mean with a descriptive title, Pathétique, that we have a program for this symphony, a story that's being told? Um, I guess the answer is yes and no, right? There is there's something to the symphony, and there's something going on, but no, we kind of don't know what it is. And I think we can just kind of get a basic understanding of this by looking at a letter that Tchaikovsky wrote, and we're going to look at a lot of them from 1893, because thankfully we have a lot of these preserved, and many are translated into English, and we can get a really good idea of kind of what's going on with Tchaikovsky. So in February, he wrote this to his nephew, Vladimir Davidov, and he said, I want to tell you about my pleasant state of mind so far as my work is concerned. You know I destroyed a symphony I had been composing and only partly orchestrated in the autumn, and was a good thing, too, because it had little of merit, empty playing with sounds without genuine inspiration. During my journey, I had the idea for another symphony, this time with a program, but such a program that will remain an enigma to everyone." Let them guess. The symphony shall be entitled, A Program Symphony number no. 6. And then he lists that same thing uh, several times in, in different languages. And he continues, The program itself will be suffused with subjectivity, and not infrequently during my travels while composing in my head, I wept a great deal. Upon my return, I sat down to write the sketches, and work went so furiously and so quickly that in less than four days, the first movement was completely ready and the remaining movements already clearly outlined in my head. The third movement is already half done. The form of this symphony will have much that is new, and amongst other things, the finale will not be a noisy allegro, but on the contrary, a long, drawn-out adagio. You can't imagine how blissful I feel in the conviction that my time is not yet past, and that to work is still possible. I might be mistaken, of course, but I don't think so. This is quite enlightening, right, Evan? I mean, he's so enthusiastic in such a good state of mind just pouring himself into this inspirational symphony.
1: And he's writing this letter, as you said, to uh, Vladimir Davidov, who was his nephew, who was nicknamed Bob for some reason. And uh, Vladimir Davidov is uh, someone to whom Tchaikovsky was very close, and he is the dedicatee of this symphony.
0: Yes, And continuing with the first movement that opens with that fifth that you mentioned, that bassoon solo, very simple um, in terms of what it's doing with a scale. And then we get these development on that theme with this little motif, kind of like a sigh in the music. And we know Tchaikovsky as kind of a nervous, anxious person whose moods are seem to be quick to change. And I think we see that in the music already, just kind of desperation in the beginning and then just followed up by more and just kind of already emotionally drained maybe with that sigh kind of statement.
1: And again, very simple musical language. One, two, three, two, that that very simple melodic line is suffuses the entire this whole portion of the symphony. Uh, and one of the things that interesting too about that example we just heard as the allegro starts of this first movement is you hear this high string playing sounds like violins doesn't it but those are actually the violas the divided violas playing high in their register and it gives it an additional kind of tension and anxiety like there's a kind of this stretching and things are not really where they're supposed to be and we're already kind of scared and nervous as the symphony is getting
0: started. That's a fantastic point because it always sounds like Tchaikovsky, especially when he's going to these emotional extremes, it sounds like he takes instruments like the viola and puts them, they, they're playing a little too high. Sometimes the music sounds like we're just a little too high. It has that extra attention. So we hear other instruments coming in as this little motif develops into something bigger, very Tchaikovsky-like. tchaikovsky like And then it all comes back down again. It feels like the whole symphony itself is kind of breathing in and out. But when it comes back down, we get a whole new character change, don't we? With this second theme being introduced. And it's moments like this, Evan are why I can't listen to Tchaikovsky if I'm actually doing something else or working because these moments just stop me in my tracks.
1: They're just so compelling. And again, this simplicity of the musical language, this stepwise motion, it spells out a chord. The harmonic language here is very straightforward. There aren't any weird, unexpected chords, and there's no strange, baffling harmonies. And yet you have this wonderful, melodic line that's just so elegant and so... words fail me. It's just like you said, John, you just kind of have to stop what you're doing and listen.
0: Well, Glenn Miller certainly enjoyed it because there was a, a song made using basically this whole theme verbatim, this is the story of a starry night. Although today, Evan, I think we often hear that music and it often... Sometimes it sounds kind of spooky. I hear that in an, in an empty ballroom at a carnival or something in a bad dream.
1: Yeah, it's this, you know, it's very beautiful and charming, and yet you feel like there's a, as we were saying with this whole symphony, there's a there's a story here. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know what the story is, and there's a story that seems to be full of great beauty and longing and, and joy, but there's also this undertone of tragedy and despair and horror. And even in that beautiful passage we just Glenn Miller's orchestra playing that there is that kind of sense of something under the surface is really not okay here. And I wonder, I I love the way Tchaikovsky is one of those composers who's so adaptable. You know, you have this marvelous Glenn Miller and the the slow movement of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony became a popular song in the 20th century. And of course, Duke Ellington's magnificent uh, rendition Mm. of the Nutcracker music. You know, Tchaikovsky is just one of those composers that has such a broad appeal. And there's so many different ways to encounter and, and
0: explore his music. Maybe part of the reason for all of that is how direct he is with the music. Oftentimes in the orchestra, you have multiple sections together with a unified musical goal driving towards something. Sometimes they're playing in unison, uh, the same notes, or sometimes it's just um, together as a kind of, I don't know, cog in a machine to get to the next destination. And I think also kind of related to that is how he transitions to things. Some composers will prepare a transition, going to a different key, to a different mood, over a longer period of time. Tchaikovsky sometimes brings us to this emotional point, either high or low, and then it's silence. And then the music comes back in and um, continues. And later on with this one, when there's a point where this second theme comes back in after something tumultuous, and it feels like just such a relief. And one of these big moments where I think it all changes so quickly is when things are brought back down and then subito, which means suddenly, the orchestra is brought back in and it's quite frenetic and it's it's so energetic in the strings. And this caught me more now than it's ever before, this section.
1: It's sort really of a terrifying experience to hear this. You have this, you're soothed by this beautiful D major subject, this very lyrical tune. It ends with this uh, bassoon solo in the score anyway, which is so low and so hard to play that most conductors have a clarinet play it. It's marked with six pianos. What is that? Sextuple? Sex, sex, I, I can't even say the word. There's this. It's as soft as you can possibly be in the score. Suddenly there's this, you know, uh diminished seventh chord and the strings are rumbling away and the rhythms are all jagged and we don't know what key we're in for a long time. And then you have this da 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 comes back again and it just feels even more menacing than before.
0: The climax I feel happens with these statements that are just filled with despair. And a hallmark of Tchaikovsky, just taking one kind of drawn-out statement and then just getting it lower or lower, sometimes higher and higher, but in this case, it's just getting lower and lower, and it sounds like it's never going to end. And then we get a moment that I hear totally different now this time, Evan, and that is when we get this emotional reiteration of that second theme brought back in towards the end of this movement, it sounds like pure opera to me. Just this extraordinary moment for the main character on stage, a soprano just pouring her heart, perhaps her guts out, too. I mean, it's so intense. Yeah. Yeah, we've been through this, uh, this torrent of this
1: overwhelming feeling. I would say that for me, this section where the minor section ends and we go to that last lyrical theme is, to me, one of the most sorrowful passages in all of music this very stark statement of anguish expresses like nothing else I can think of
0: and then he brings us this devastatingly beautiful moment for the clarinet which leads to this beautiful corral for the brass and winds accompanied by just the most simple pizzicato in the strings, so or just plucking the string without the bow this it sounds like such a solemn kind of relief accomplishment a finished moment
1: What comes to my mind is the final movement of Beethoven 's Sixth Symphony, where the storm passes, and the shepherds are rejoicing and there 's this sense of having overcome something overwhelmingly terrible, and there 's this incredible beauty that emerges from it, and yet we 're scarred. Mm-hmm. Everything is not okay we 're we're, we're in this place of serenity, and there 's this gorgeous sound, and yet there 's also this sense of wow we 've been through something so terrible. It's hard to speak of it, and so we will sing this beautiful melody instead, even though the pain is still there. Mm. It's like acceptance.
0: I think so. So that movement is just an emotional roller coaster. So let's take a moment to, to look at what Tchaikovsky's life was like in 1893 as he's entering his early 50s. Here's another letter that he wrote to his nephew, Vladimir Davidov. This came a little bit earlier, actually, um, when he was in Paris in January before he started this, but it gives a a little bit of an insight into his his well-being. He says, "'Dear fellow, I received your letter while I was staying in Brussels, but it wasn't possible for me to write anything there. I returned from there last night, and my concert on the third day went brilliantly.' However, I cannot boast about my mood being cheerful as well. On the contrary, it's always awful, but changeable. The nature of this awfulness depends on the situation. It might simply be homesickness, or nerves about rehearsals and concerts, or fatigue from acquaintances and conversation, or disappointment in myself, or fearing for the future, etc., etc., he writes. But for all that I am completely healthy, sleeping excellently, and only occasionally have an upset stomach. In any case, I'm always better in Paris than anywhere else abroad. And then it's kind of funny. He spends the next paragraph chewing out his nephew over um, something, some disrespect he showed someone else. Uh, He did that quite a lot in his letters. But what a a thing to read from Tchaikovsky. This really humbles or humanizes him in terms of these nerves, these fears of concerts and rehearsals, homesickness, all of that.
1: We know a lot about Tchaikovsky's inner emotional state, more so than we do with a lot of other composers. Part of the reason for that is these letters that we have from him, and also a lot of contemporary accounts of friends and family members and colleagues. And there's this universal sense that Tchaikovsky was absolutely tormented through his whole life by all kinds of intensely, uh, really overwhelming emotional distress, Did he have an anxiety disorder? Like how would we use 21st century language to describe his state? I'm not really sure, but just terrible suffering this man experienced. Very, very sensitive person, had a great desire, great ambition to create great music and to be appreciated, but the fame was also very stressful for him. Enormous self-doubt, constantly questioning himself, and and feeling this low self-esteem. And of course, he he was a gay man in a society that didn't accept that. He himself really didn't accept that about himself. He referred to it as my sickness. He had all the kinds of physical health problems. So, this here is someone who's really experiencing a great deal of suffering. We have a lot of documentation. A lot of testimony to what he experienced internally. And it's it's very difficult. It's really impossible for me, I think, for most of us to listen to his music without that lens of seeing him
0: as this, you know, not to be uh, melodramatic about it, but this tormented soul. Yes, it really does change how you, how you listen to his music. Why don't you read for us this next letter?
1: So this is uh, his uh, younger brother, Anatoly, uh, in February 22nd. So he's really, I think at this point, just about to start working on the Sixth Symphony. And he writes to him, I'll be arriving early next week on Tuesday or Wednesday. Please, dear fellow, know that on this occasion, I can only stay for a little while, no more than three days. All my thoughts are now taken up with a new composition, a symphony. And it's very difficult for me to break away from this work. It seems to me that this is the best work I have ever produced. This symphony must be finished as quickly as possible for I have a great deal of other work and even the prospect of a journey to London and Cambridge. So lots of excitement he's feeling, he's expressing this to his brother. He's the sense of, I'm about to do something that's better than anything else I've ever done as a composer. And you find that theme throughout his letters and in testimony his conversations with people, this was the work of which he was proudest. He considered this Sixth Symphony to be his greatest achievement.
0: And I think a lot of us look at his musical output and we have to agree. I think so. Looking at another letter he wrote shortly after this in June while he was in London on that trip he just mentioned in the previous letter, he writes to Modest Tchaikovsky, who is another younger brother, in fact, the twin of the previous brother. So he writes... Thank you, dear Modinka, if I'm saying that right, probably um, um, a family name. Thank you for both letters. Letters are a great boost to my strength, which is constantly about to lapse. The concert went off brilliantly, i.e., by unanimous opinion, I had a real triumph, such that Sansans, who appeared after me, suffered somewhat as a consequence of my extraordinary success. Besides this, I'm obliged to go to concerts every afternoon because people turn up to invite me and it's awkward to refuse. For example, today I had to visit Sarasate, who was remarkably nice to me. It's difficult to describe the frenetic bustle on London's streets. Well, it's funny to see composers over the centuries complain about London and how crowded and how loud and how busy it is. Two, he's he's saying, I had to visit Sarasate, um, the, one of the greatest violinists. I mean, okay, yeah, I'm sorry you had to visit him, Tchaikovsky, <laughs> but, yeah. oh. <laughs> but I think we can all relate to this in one sense, you know, this obligations, you know, making plans and then regretting them, that kind of thing. But also we see him being so joyful, almost a bit of schadenfreude with the um, great concert and then sans-, sans went off, almost like a, a comic goes on after the, the great one and um yeah the audience doesn't laugh so much at their jokes but uh... Tchaikovsky
1: doesn't doesn't brag very often but when he does uh mm-hmm. you can really feel the satisfaction he feels he like again he's very ambivalent about fame about recognition he really wants people to appreciate him and his music but at the same time it's very stressful for him is he is he an intensely shy person is he an, uh you know a really overwhelming introvert and can't really handle the pressures of uh social engagement and and so forth i'm not sure but there's this Constant sense of stress with him, and uh, you know this tension of wanting to be renowned and successful, and also really wanting to be out of the spotlight.
0: Yes, let's look at one more letter. This one in August, close to the closer to the premiere that would take place in late October. He also wrote this to his nephew Vladimir Davidov, who was the dedicatee, as you mentioned, Evan. But he starts the letter off with, My life is lacking in color or variety. In the evenings, I'm sometimes bored, but I mustn't complain because the main thing now is the symphony, and I can only work on it at home. My life is greatly enriched by my godson, an exceptionally appealing child. At the end of August, I'm going abroad for a week. If I knew whether you would be staying in Verkova during the summer, then I'd love to come at the start of the month. And this, Evan, a reason why I included this was the P.S. he includes at the end below his signature. He wrote, tonight I had a cow stolen. What a shame. <laughs> that is, the, if, if no one takes anything away from this podcast, that line should be it. Tonight I had a cow stolen. What a shame. I can't imagine Tchaikovsky waking up in the morning, looking out the window. Where's the, where's the cow? Did you milk the cow already? Where's the cow? I mean, that ruined, we know this day, August 14th, Tchaikovsky had a bad day.
1: You know, he's uh, in the midst of one of the most significant events of his professional life, and yet here he is writing to his nephew. He's very close to his nephew, dedicates the symphony to him, and he's sharing these sort of, some of the details are mundane, but they're also, he talks about his godson. He's talking about just sort of living his life and feeling bored or feeling depressed, feeling excited, uh, you know, and this is just a, a wonderful glimpse into the everyday life of this genius.
0: So let's go into the second movement now, because as we said, the first movement ended. It's such an emotional roller coaster. We go to the second movement, and this is the complete opposite. This sounds so simple, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, just this marvelous, uh, you know, Tchaikovsky, the ballet composer, is really evident here, as in many places in this symphony, but I think more so here than anywhere else. And we have this uh, very unusual, not entirely unprecedented, but very unusual feature of this uh, movement, don't we, John? Yes, a waltz that's
0: in five, four time.
1: Right. This is a genre that uh, we don't often remember in the 21st century, but during the uh, middle of the 19th century, there was this uh, sort of musical novelty. You didn't see it frequently, but occasionally it would crop up. The uh, valse à Saint the waltz in five time. And uh, this, was, uh, this was a genre of uh, music, sometimes dance music. You find instrumental pieces and so forth that are written in five, four, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Kind of like a a sort of a limping... A strange rhythm to dance to And yet if you listen to this piece Especially the second movement of the symphony It seems so danceable And in fact also in 1893 When Tchaikovsky was composing this symphony He wrote his 18 pieces Opus 72 It's a collection of piano pieces One of which is a waltz in 5-4 time So Tchaikovsky uh, Had experience with this kind of Rhythmic language So a lot of people look at this and they say Wow Tchaikovsky did something no one else Ever did. 5 4 time is so weird, but uh, it's unusual, but it's not unheard of. And yet, one of the things about this that I find so remarkable is despite this very odd, unusual time signature, the piece sounds so natural.
0: This movement, it feels like this is exactly what we need after the first one. It almost feels like Tchaikovsky is doing this, well, of course, he's doing it purposely, but also he's trying to take care of us emotionally almost maybe pandering well they probably can't handle too much after that first movement so we have to have this kind of palette cleanser in between this um this dance that is gives you glimpses of vienna perhaps familiar to um, some audiences at the time still some character changes and a uh, beautiful ending as the music really winds down but um, a perfect one in context of this symphony and unusual in terms of not just the 5-4 time signature but this kind of music for the second movement where we would typically expect something kind of slow and contemplative.
1: Yeah, yeah. No lyrical uh, slow movement here like in, for example, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Marvelous slow movement there is the second movement. As you said, John, this is really more like a, a moment of relief. We've been through this tumultuous experience in the first movement between this lyrical beauty and this terrifying clamor. And then we have this very dance like movement, a lot of repeat signs in this second movement, the only movement in the symphony with repeat signs. And when I see repeat signs in an orchestral score like this, it really reminds me of a ballet score. Mm. Like you will have this section where the dancers will repeat the same music and, and they'll dance to different steps during that. It's very, it
0: seems like a very, uh, a dance score kind of aspect. And we'll get into the third movement right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or in the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. So now we get into the third movement of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. To me, Evan, this one is a little bit similar to the second one in that it's not um, some drawn out thing like the first movement, but there's a little bit more going on here.
1: Yeah, this is uh, kind of a a neither nor. I'm not sure how to characterize this. It starts off sounding like a scherzo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have that triple time, you know, with the twelve-eight in uh, a, a lot of the string parts and the woodwinds. So there's this sort of dance-like quality of fast three that you'd associate with a scherzo, and yet as the movement progresses, there's no joke going on. A no, scherzo is, you know, literally means joke. It isn't always uh, interpreted that way musically, but. Uh, this isn't just some sort of lighthearted little thing. This, it's, this evolves through the course of the movement into something quite uh, dramatic and thrilling, starting off like a
0: scherzo, but really ending like a triumphal march. And like so many other instances and in, in times with Tchaikovsky, the whole thing is kicked off by a very, very, very simple motif, which the first time appears in the oboe, and then it transforms, as you hear, into um, something totally different. So like other movements here and other symphonies of Tchaikovsky, it's built on that simple motif that, that, that grows. This showcases a lot of the qualities we learned about Tchaikovsky in episode number 28 on his life in music. This movement overall, to me, it kind of sounds like the second half of a finale to one of his other symphonies. This sounds like the resolution, triumphant march that you mentioned end, but um, it's not quite the end.
1: I really have to think that audiences were very confused by this piece the first time they heard it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have this triumphal ending, and then the symphony's not over. No. Uh, You know, this very 19th century idea of symphonies should end on a note of triumph, and you see this in other Tchaikovsky symphonies and other 19th century symphonies, Russian symphonies or other composers, and Tchaikovsky doesn't do that at all in this piece, and it's marvelous to us, but to the very first hearers, I can't imagine how they reacted.
0: Yes. In fact, we'll we'll get to the fourth movement, the puzzling finale at times. We'll get to the finale in just a moment, but we have to talk about really what happened right after the premiere, and that is, tragically, that Tchaikovsky died pretty quickly after this. This was premiered Saturday, October 28th in 1893 to lukewarm reception, which, considering the finale and um, all the um, kind of different things Tchaikovsky's doing, probably not unexpected, but they did not not like it, I guess, is the, the thing. But uh, tragically, Tchaikovsky died before there was even a second performance. The next week, the night of November 1st, he had an upset stomach, which worsened. He became violently ill for several days, improved for a day, it sounds like, and then worsened before he would die in the early hours of the morning on November 6th. And this shocked the music world, as you can imagine. He was in his early 50s. He was a beloved and very popular, very wealthy composer at this point. It was sudden, and it, and it was shocking. So, of course, rumors abound and spread. One was of that he took his own life, which we don't even have to entertain. It's been widely disproven. It's just a, a tragedy that that happened, because now we also have no information about that enigma as well for what the symphony is.
1: Right. He talks about, uh, in his letters to his nephew and his brothers and so forth, there's a program to the symphony. He doesn't want anybody to know what it is. And, you know, there's this very, uh, we're about to talk about the fourth movement, very unusual music, and people immediately started to wonder, was this some kind of musical suicide note? And to this very day, there's a lot of people that are still attached to this idea.
0: Yes. I think he simply drank a glass of water that wasn't totally clean, and he got cholera and then died, like the other um, 200,000 Russians that I guess would die in that cholera pandemic in the 1890s. We hear mythological or or mythical stories about composers' early life, and I think when things end, not how we expect, we we try to fill the void with things when it's just maybe simply just a tragedy.
1: Yeah, there are always going to be unanswered questions about all kinds of things. Tchaikovsky's death, you know, I have a lot of questions, but I also think that the idea of suicide is very hard to uh, authenticate uh, you know, his death by cholera is there are a lot of strange things about that too. But you know, I mean, I guess like two hundred thousand people died. It was a serious health problem in, in Russia in the eighteen nineties. And uh, Tchaikovsky, it's it's quite possible that he got gets contaminated water into his body, and it cholera is a very serious illness. Uh, and, you know, we don't really know what exactly all the details are, and there's conflicting reports and, and rumors and so forth. And somehow that just enhances our interest in this music, uh, these unanswerable questions that, that plague us and, they're, and they're, they torment us. And here was this beautiful man, this sensitive person who created so much marvelous things, and all of a sudden he dies, this, yeah. this rather stupid death. And it mm-hmm. just seems so unfair and uh, so shocking to us, even all these all these years later, and uh, leaves us with just uh, a longing to understand more about what this music is trying to tell us, even though we know we can't answer those questions. Yes.
0: We can look at a little bit from another letter, just to his state of mind as he's getting closer to the premiere. This is in late August. He wrote to Peter Jurgensen, who was a friend and his main publisher. He wrote him saying... I'm telling you this information and asking you to state your wishes. On my word of honor, never in my life have I been so satisfied, so proud, so happy in the knowledge that I've produced something truly good, exclamation point. He was truly at the um, ends of finishing the symphony, all the orchestration writing and the markings dynamics. He was still very, very excited and um, confident in this piece.
1: Yeah, another reason to discredit the idea of suicide when mm-hmm. he is so proud of this accomplishment. Letter after letter he's telling his family, he's telling his friends, his publisher, this is my best work. And he's in his early, he's in his 50s, he's got his whole life ahead of him, uh, you know, it, it's it's so it's so terrible to think about the context of this in his mm-hmm. in the course of his life.
0: The fourth movement, the finale, it has a kind of similar opening to the first in that we have this long kind of dramatic introduction, and the music is doing something here quite interesting. It sounds like the theme is played by a single section, Evan, and I really was not aware of this, um, but that's not what's happening here.
1: Yeah, you can't you can't hear what's happening. You have to look at the score, and you hear this melody, da-dee-da-dum-da-da, da, and no one is playing that. The, what you have is the string parts are crossing so that the first and second violins exchange note after note. The, I, I don't even know how to describe this. You have to actually look at the score. Maybe we can put a, an image on the show notes page to show the ways in which the parts are crossing to produce this melody.
0: Yes. I think uh, one way to des- uh, describe, this, uh, describe voice crossing, which is what this is, is if um, you and I were singing a duet, Evan, and you're singing the bottom part. I'm singing the top part. Your highest note is not going to be higher than my lowest note, um, for example. But if I start singing lower than you're singing, we've now crossed. Yep. And it sounds like it's just p- changing back and forth, the, um, or exchanging back and forth who's playing the note of the theme. And uh, yeah, it produces a wonderful effect.
1: And one of the things that's really fun about this from a sort of a musicological nerdy kind of perspective, if you play each of these parts at the beginning of this movement by themselves, they sound really weird. Yes. Uh they're they're kind of ugly, and then you put them all together and you have this incredibly beautiful and powerful statement.
0: This kind of emotional, sort of morose sound. It continues, ending with um, a moment in the bassoons, similar again to the um, opening movement. And then after a bit of silence, a transition that we've already talked about with Tchaikovsky, we get this new feeling, this new emotion, this kind of optimism that feels like it's slow moving, growing more and more. And classic Tchaikovsky, the energy is increasing bit by bit. And it's like a, a frog in water. You don't really quite understand, you know, how deep you're in, um, until you get to this huge emotional high point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, one of Tchaikovsky's greatest gifts as a composer is able to build and build and build these emotional states that, in a way that's so compelling.
0: And then, not too long after this. We go back to something darker. And this reminds me some of what we see in his letters in terms of his emotional state always changing. He said, um, I'm, I'm doing okay right now. I'm strong, but I, that's always about to lapse. It's always on the edge. And it, it seems like, I mean, not to um, fill in the blanks, but it, it does feel like we, we see the same thing here. Where these moods are changing, and it feels like we're going in one direction. And, and it feels like he's finally going to get to where he wants to be, maybe in life. And it never happens how we expect it's going to happen. And if that's how it feels like in the music. We're pushing towards something, but we never quite achieve it. This prepares us for what comes next as he slowly brings the music back down. And this, Evan, is one of my favorite moments in all of music. This devastatingly beautiful corral in the low brass. So this chorale is extremely soft, and it's great to experience live. Through the headphones, you can hear it much more clearly. The mics are, everything's amped up for the, for that example. But live, this literally, I mean, it fades into silence. It's the softest thing I've ever played in my life. With an orchestra, it's so rewarding. So looking at the dynamics, before you mentioned that there was something super soft, six Ps um, in a row. In um, in music, we use Italian to describe dynamics. Many know piano means soft. Forte is loud. You can get kind of in between with mezzo forte or mezzo piano. You can have two Ps, which is pianissimo, which means very, very soft. Sometimes you see three. That's not un- That's not unusual. And that's meaning something very quiet, maybe something very, very delicate. Tchaikovsky brings us down here to... Five P's. We don't really have a way of even saying in English, as you mentioned before. We don't really have a way of even describing this other than it is tremendously soft. And what's so rewarding when you play this is it's a moment for just the people playing, it seems. When you're playing this and the three people next to you are playing so soft that it's to a point where you're the only ones hearing yourself, um, it feels quite, quite special. And it goes in the opposite direction, too, with four or five Fs super, super forte, uh, very, very loud. Really, really
1: extreme. In fact, in the first movement, in the strings toward the end, in that passionate sorrow that I was talking about earlier, the strings are marched uh, forte possibile, as loud as possible. Mm -hmm. So you have these extremes throughout this symphony. In some ways, this is a, a sort of a late 19th century characteristic, but Tchaikovsky really... Really explores those possibilities. It pushes the envelope uh, in terms of what can be expressed uh, on on a, the page of a score. These these wild contrasts of dynamics from the very very softest possible to the very loudest possible, and everything in
0: between. I sort of wonder, and this is kind of all made up. This is just kind of my own musings and daydreamings. When I read Tchaikovsky's letters, I see a lot of exclamation points. It's 2023, you know, today we have a lot of exclamation points. I'm a millennial. I use them all the time. I I, I overuse them. Tchaikovsky uses a lot of exclamation points, more than any composer or person I've read from the 19th century. Sometimes three in a row, sometimes uh, like three exclamation points in a row after a sentence, sometimes a couple of sentences with an exclamation point after, uh, after each one. I don't really know. But how in history that kind of all lines up with what was happening. But I wonder if in the music we see the same thing. He is so declamatory, and with the use of these um, extreme dynamics, five Fs or four Ps, it's almost like his use of the exclamation point.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent analogy, John. There's a kind of emphatic quality, uh, maybe to our aesthetic, it seems a little overdone. Uh, There are those that feel that way about Tchaikovsky. I am not one of them. Uh, Different people have different opinions. But, you know, you have that kind of raw honesty with which he expresses himself when he's writing a letter or when he's composing music. And there's a vulnerability there. It draws us in, but it's also kind of shocking. You're, You're seeing this very intimate portrait of another person's psyche in those kinds of things in a way that makes us reflect on ourselves but we're also discovering this about this person who lived long ago who had experiences that a lot of us can relate to whether we have a life similar to his or not this feeling of being inadequate the feeling of not fitting in of wanting to be understood and appreciated but also fearing that exposure and even in these little things like exclamation points or these unusual dynamic markings in the score, we feel like Tchaikovsky's trying to tell us something that he doesn't really want to reveal. This program symphony where he won't tell us what the program is, yeah. is a is a wonderful way of him of, of trying to be honest with us about who he is and yet being afraid to really reveal the truth.
0: It really feels like the symphony ends with this corral in the low brass. But it can't quite end. Again, it sounds like he's not pandering, but he's trying to take care of us emotionally. It's so devastating that ending there with the corral. He continues the music a little bit more to bring us back, um, to bring us back down. Almost feels like at the end of a movie. Sometimes they use those devices so that the lights don't just pop up and you're um, you know, dazed and confused. But he brings us back down gently, almost like um, the final water in time is going down a little hole in the ground and that's gone forever. people might be more confused now than ever with Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. I know I have so many questions about this one. This is just one that is so rewarding to listen to all at once or multiple times. I always say, you know, listen to it now and then give it a week or two. Set an alarm on your phone or a reminder and listen to it again. And then listen to a different recording. Every recording is going to be different.
1: Yes, there's there's always more to discover with this piece.
0: Well, that's just about... Everything I can think of right now to talk about with this uh, enigmatic work. Do you have anything else, Evan, for Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. Six, Pathetique? I find
1: in Tchaikovsky generally, and especially in this piece, there's a kind of raw honesty in Tchaikovsky, and people either admire that as genuine and powerful, and authentic, and and they relate to it, or people. Dismiss Tchaikovsky as uh, maudlin and contrived. And I've always been in the former camp. I, I love Tchaikovsky's music. I love this piece. It, it speaks to me on a very deep level. It always has since I was a kid. And I also think the technical aspects of this symphony are... Extraordinarily impressive. This isn't this isn't just brazen emoting. Uh, this isn't just a sort of uh, mold. There's a, there's a there's a wonderful architecture to this piece. Very finely crafted symphony. It's very elegantly structured. The instrumentation is really marvelous. The, there's these incredibly beautiful melodies and these marvelous sonorities and harmonies. I would argue, uh, as Tchaikovsky himself said, this is the this is his greatest achievement. And Tchaikovsky is, I think, one of Russia's greatest composers.
0: I couldn't agree more. So now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. What do we have, Evan?
1: So we got a five-star review, thank you very much, from Doula Music. Uh, this was after hearing our episode on The Ballad of the Brown King by Margaret Bonds. And she writes, I had never heard of this till today. I enjoyed learning about the piece, why she may have written it the way she did. I will find this work of hers and listen to it. Thank you for always opening my eyes to new thoughts and music. Well, thank you, Doula Music, for your review, and thank you to all of our listeners.
0: Please send in reviews. We do read them. Well, thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Evan, for also enlightening me to all kinds of things with this symphony. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Panther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical.